Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. My guest today is critically acclaimed author J.J. Hensley. His published works currently include a short story and five novels, counting the recently released Record Scratch. His debut novel, entitled Resolve, was a finalist for the International Thriller Writers Awards Best First Novel. J.J. has worked as a local cop, a special agent with the U.S. Secret Service, and now works for Fletsy, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. Thank you, J.J., for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate you letting me steal some of your time today. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'd wager that most of the audience has never met a Secret Service agent, and I hoped you could help us out with that. Growing up, all I knew about the job was what I saw in the Clint Eastwood movie In the Line of Fire. After I became a cop, I learned the agency's primary mission was currency protection, and until I caught some dignitary protection work in 2015-2016 and spent some time around your colleagues, I didn't appreciate how many directions those agents get pulled in. Can you give the listeners an idea of what the typical Secret Service agent's day looks like? Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a misconception because, uh, people don't realize that there are secret service, uh, agents stationed all over the country and actually in multiple places throughout the world. Um, for instance, I started in, I didn't start in Washington, DC, even though most, most agents end up doing a rotation through there. Um, I started in Richmond, Virginia, which didn't, didn't have protectees living, um, in, in that, uh, district, but we, uh, had a lot of investigations going on. So for instance, I would be working a lot of counterfeit currency cases um, and or counterfeit check cases, uh, worked a lot of fraud cases, anything that dealt with a federally insured financial institution. Um, I even did, uh, I, I worked on the periphery of a cell phone cloning case. So people uh, don't realize that there's a lot, there you know, has always been a lot involved with financial crimes, and that's actually why the Secret Service was created uh, back in 1865. Abraham Lincoln actually signed the executive order creating the Secret Service solely to combat counterfeit currency. So um, that that was the original mission, and, and still to this day that the Secret Service has primary jurisdiction over counterfeit currency. Um, and then uh, they, there's obviously the protection aspect of that, so uh, even though I was in, let's say, Richmond, Virginia, I, I would bounce around and get pulled for protection duty, whether it be in D.C. or traveling out to different areas all over the country. Uh, for instance, I came out of training right during an election cycle. And so I came out of training within a couple of weeks. I think I'd, I was bouncing around the country to different places, Syracuse, New York, and Portland, Maine. And um, gosh, it, it was just a blur for a while. And and uh, you get a lot of great experience that way. So to, it, it's kind of, in, especially these days, because there's so many protectees and they're so busy and so shorthanded. Uh, I'm not sure that there is a routine day or a typical day in in that job, but uh, it, it's it's a lot more diverse than what people do realize. Yeah, the guys that I last worked with on a protection detail, one of them was talking about having cases that are like three years old, but he couldn't make time to follow up on them because he's constantly getting pulled out of his home office and state to go to all these other places to work protections, especially when there's an election year. Right. It's, it's, it's very challenging when you're trying to schedule interviews uh, with people and 
then all of a sudden you have to cancel the interview because you're finding out you're going to be standing a post for protection assignment or, you know, Hey, guess what? I'm going to be gone for three weeks, um, bouncing around to all these different sites unexpectedly because I'm somebody's going on you know, the campaign trail. Um, or there's some big event, the United Nations is going on, or I spent two months at the Olympics at Salt Lake city. Um, so there, there's a lot going on. It, it makes it an extreme challenge for that agency. One of my favorite aspects of my cop career was working money laundering. I love a good follow the money case, and I'm really intrigued about your clone cell phone case. Do you have a, a favorite felony for profit investigation or case that you worked that you could talk about without compromising anything? Uh, I, I mean, gosh, I was only on the periphery of the, the and this, I'm dating myself here on, on the cell phone case because that was, um, that was such a, a bizarre case because the technology changed so much that what we were tracking was a cloned cell phone. It was an analog cell phone. And even back then that technology was becoming obsolete. So there was, there was a way that we could actually pinpoint the location of a, of a cell phone from an individual who was, who was, who had cloned a cell phone and was making some threats towards some people that then that required a lot of uh, surveillance. And every time that phone came on, we were able to, to pinpoint the location a little, a little closer. Um, but, but that, that kind of is a good example of how cases change with the technology. Um, yes. And it, now, in the, for instance, the Secret Service has a, an electronic uh, crimes special agent program where they have agents who are trained specifically to pull forensic evidence off of computers, um, which was originally, I believe, created as, you know, because people were using computers to counterfeit money. Um, and you know that they have to stay up they have to stay abreast of the technology that changes because it's it's so fast uh how things change it, overnight uh the technology changes and becomes so so advanced um that even when i was in training and i came through the secret service academy in uh 2000 uh we were still learning about how um, offset pr uh, printers were used for counterfeit counterfeit money, but it, it was quickly evolving to where offset printers were almost obsolete for counterfeiting money, except for f certain countries were doing it, and everybody else was just using computers and using high quality printers. And uh, it's it's that's the fascinating thing about about law enforcement and, and with writing books and trying to keep up with that is to you know, when your book comes out, some of this technology that you wrote about may be obsolete. Absolutely. I've had that same issue in my own fiction writing. Uh, one of the cases I, I fictionalized contains some tech that doesn't actually exist anymore. The, the readers are unlikely to notice, at least I hope so, but for the, uh, for the cops who pick it up, they're going to pretty quickly realize the few portions of the criminal's tech are so antiquated that nobody's using that to commit crime anymore. So uh, on the plus side, there's no way to hurt anyone's investigations because nobody's doing that. Right. And I mean, I, you know, I, gosh, I was writing one of my books and I, I don't know what made me do it. I checked with a former colleague of mine at my, my first police department, Westerville County, Virginia. And uh, I said, are you guys still using this type of pepper spray? And it was the type of pepper spray we'd been trained on, capstone. And he said, oh, Lord, no. And I was like, oh, why? Because I was getting ready to put that in a book. Sure. And he said, it doesn't react well with taser. Back when I was on patrol, we didn't have tasers. Um, that wasn't the technology. So 
you have to stay abreast, especially when you're writing. I still do a lot of research, even though I'm still still in the field, um, so to speak, because I'm I'm still still um, working. But uh, it's it's amazing that you have to do that with your writing because you you know, a few years ago, if you would have written a book, you wouldn't have dreamed that you'd be saving things to the cloud. But next year, somebody will be you know doing something different. And now, virtual reality is you know becoming more common. It's it's crazy. So you kind of brought it up in a roundabout way, but what, one of the struggles in my own writing is balancing authenticity with information that's uh, deemed LEUO, uh, law enforcement use only. How do you include legitimate real-life details in your work without giving away the goods, the, the strategy and the tactics that cops have to keep under their hats and it's still being used operationally in the field right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm very careful about that. I'm, I, I think in, it seems like the readers really appreciate it if you use authentic jargon, mm-hmm. if you use uh, authentic tactics, but not giving away detailed information as far as how certain systems work. Um, you know, it, it's okay to, to point out you know, how ridiculous some things are on like NCIS and BSI. <laughs> And you know, DNA is not going to be processed in a day and stuff like that. I think I think readers are appreciate that that authenticity when when that they see that in the book and they're like, oh, oh, okay, this person is is isn't playing the game where they just you know arrest somebody off the street even though they don't have probable cause. Um, you know, I, I think it's that level of authenticity that that readers seem to really enjoy, and they don't necessarily need to know you know, the operational specifics. They don't need to know, uh, you know, code names of protectees or vehicles in a motorcade and things like that. They, they, they understand. Um, it's, it's, it's the other Hollywood crap that, that, <laughs> that, that, that I think that they get tired of seeing. One of my guilty pleasures for at least TV fiction is Criminal Minds. Uh, man, they get so many details wrong, though. But I just love watching the characters, and they're good enough and well-written enough that I'm willing to forgive the tactical mistakes. Uh, a couple of my favorite things that they've done, though. Uh, they have the, the whole team at the end of the episode. This whole team encircles this serial killer. Everybody breaks leather, gets their guns out, and points guns at the bad guy, which means they're now pointing their guns at each other. Um, the other thing that I love that they do is that the uh, the FBI field agent, or the sp- FBI special agent, is always leading the entry team in, right? He's wearing soft body armor over a polo shirt, and he's leading in uh, an entry team that's in rifle-plated heavy armor. I just love those kind of faux pas. Yeah. And you've talked before about law enforcement stereotypes and your hatred of stereotyped characters, that the bad guys are all bad, the good guys are all good. One of your main series characters, Trevor Galloway, um, from Record Scratch, is anything but typecast. Uh, do you mind sharing what the process was like in creating that character? Yeah, he's he's my favorite protagonist that I've, I've had in any of my books. Um, yeah. I've had some, and I've, and I've liked all of them. I liked. Um, I had one named Cypress Keller. I've had one named Jackson Channing, and now I've kind of evolved to where if I, I, I kind of need to get through them to, to find my rhythm with Trevor Galloway. Um, it's uh, as with Trevor Galloway, as with all my characters, I really enjoy making sure that there is a, a rather large gray area with my characters. Um, as you were mentioning. I, I, I get annoyed with 
any novels or any um, Hollywood productions where the characters are uh, the knight in shining armor uh, are marching in and they don't have any flaws. I, I, I want to see the flaws in characters because we are all flawed and I want the books to be authentic. Um, same as with the, the, the villains in the books. I don't want them to be completely you know, necessarily bad. I want them to, to have a human side to them or at least even have a redeeming quality they can be um it's to me that that's a little bit more like real life and and uh, that galloway is one of those characters that that i really enjoy because in one chapter he can be almost you can see he wants to be that white knight he 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 wants to get there but there are some things that just drag him back to where he, he really struggles with, with some things in his past. And then if people push him a little too far, he can go completely the other way. And he, he has a bit of a temper that can be tapped into. So he can be very stoic, but it's more like a, a dormant volcano. And uh, that's that's a, a, a gray area that can become a little bit dangerous. So it's it, it kind, of, kind of like keeping him bottled up, but then every once in a while. Yeah, uncork him and let him go. Yeah. It was probably on the streets about a year, and one of my buddies talked to me a lot about how there are very few truly good and truly bad people who are you know, all white hat or all black hat. Everybody's got this other side to them. They're more complex characters than that. You know, the, the burglars who are stealing to feed their kids or at least have some narrow justification for what they're doing. Right. And in light of that, I, I wonder in, in your own writing – how do you go about structuring your crimes? Are, are there elements of your own cases or investigations in there? Or is it pretty much your own imagination? Most of it's imagination only because, as you know, most, most, most crimes aren't like it is on TV. Most crimes are you know, pretty linear and they're pretty, pretty routine um, as far as what occurs. You know, somebody needs money, somebody steals money, somebody <laughs> takes money, try to find the guy who took money. Um, it, there's not that many elaborate cases, like, and there's not a criminal mastermind behind it all. What my favorite books, because I'm a big crime fiction writer or reader, obviously. Um, my favorite books are the ones where the crime is as interesting as who did it, um, and figuring out how the crime was done, or or you know, figuring out who did the crime and why is as interesting as who did it. So, um, yeah. It, to me, that's that's why I go about structuring things the way I do. So if I've you know, written a book, you know, I, I you know, I've written a book where um, then the protagonist was going to kill somebody during a marathon, or um, you know, uh, I've integrated one where somebody had a, a background in blacksmithing. I've written <laughs> somebody, somebody, you know, uh, I did a lot of research on biathlon. Um, there was a biathlon training camp next door to where somebody was shot. That's uh, that's bold action remedy, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I, I, I kind of, I try to come up with these creative settings for, for these crime scenes, um, just because I, th- I think that that's more interesting than real life. But then I try to keep the actual characters more authentic. It's amazing to me that the bulk of fiction features some element, right, uh, some sort of crime, and it's most often murder. 
in my own police experience, there are relatively few murders compared to everything else that happens to human beings. And the murders in real life never go the way that they're presented in fiction, right? With some mystery man coming out of left field that no one expected or, you know, a, a circle of unaffiliated people who all agree to kill each other's exes so it looks random to the cops. In, uh, you know, in real life, it's almost always the first or second suspect on the list who ends up being responsible for it. So I mean, I guess in that regard, true life homicide is far less entertaining than its fictional presentation. Yeah, Agatha Christie ruined it for everybody. Yeah, that's right. She did. One of the other things that I think uh, readers and listeners might not really appreciate is the logistical difference between local and federal cops. And every time that I've worked with a federal agent, whether you know a task force or on a common shared case, it, it always seems like they've got an AUSA, uh, the, uh, an assistant uh, U.S. attorney, Uh, kind of along for the ride right from the beginning of their case. So one of the cases I I caught here in Arizona, and for the benefit of the listeners, Arizona is generally a supply state for narcotics, which simply means that illicit drugs come into Arizona, most of them from Mexico. Um, They're they're actually bound for somewhere else for a demand state that doesn't have direct access to an international border. Um, And like any other commodity, things have to be shipped um, either by air, by freight, cargo. Um, so drugs flow into the southern U.S. and they continue to all points north. So anyway, I, I caught the money side of this meth case where the, the actual dealers were in Montana. It, it turns out he had only caught like 50 grams of meth, but somehow convinced his boss to send him to Arizona for a week to tie up loose ends. And on like day three, my boss and I were asking him, like, is there anything we can do to help you, you know, tie up these, these loose ends on this big meth case? And uh, he told us, he's like, well, I'm actually still waiting for the AUSA to approve my, my warrants and my paperwork. And so um, that was one of the first times I realized that what a difference it is to work on the federal and the, and the kind of the local side. And I wonder if, JJ, if you can kind of give us some, some explanation of what that difference was like for you. Yeah, that was a that was a change for me too because um, when I was a local police officer, I would you know like you mentioned, I would you know go work and I had uh, I was in a department where they they actually let me when I was on patrol, I was able to work a few investigations and uh, you know you you work it and then you take it to the magistrate and then you present it and that was that was the first time the magistrate heard about it. That was the first time any any kind of person in the judicial system ever touched it um, and. And then later, the prosecutor, would, the, the um, Commonwealth attorney in Virginia, would, would you know, be briefed on the case. Uh, once you go to the federal system, depending on the size of the case, the uh, assistant U.S. attorney wants to know immediately. They want to know right up front what they're dealing with because it's possible, depending on the, the case and the size of the case and what's involved, it's possible they could decline. They say, hey, this is a... You know, this is a $1,500 counterfeit case. They may, you know, go ahead and press the charges to state court. Federal is not going to mess with them. Um, and and that, that happened a lot of times. Um, so you would get them involved right at the front, and then they would say, okay, you know, I'll, you know they would help even with writing the, of warrants sometimes. And it was much more methodical as far as the paperwork went. Um, so... And it just and sometimes it would differ according to who your assistant U.S. attorney was. So I would go in front of one AUSA in let's say Richmond, 
and they would say, yeah, you run with it and then come back. And then you might go in front of another one and they would say, you know, okay, here's what I would prefer you do. And then that would be the next step. Um, you know, as a funny aside, uh, one of my uh, assistant U.S. attorneys in Richmond, Virginia, um, has become wildly famous now. It was uh, James Comey. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Wildly famous is an understatement. Yeah, that was the, the shortest I ever felt in my law enforcement career. <laughs> yeah. Isn't he like 10 foot 12? Yeah. He, he, he stood, I remember the first time I walked in an office and uh, he stood up by his desk. He's like six foot seven. Uh, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm six foot. And, and, he kept standing, standing, standing. I'm like, huh. I, I, I just feel like I walked into an NBA locker room. This is ridiculous. So, now, most authors who don't have access to experts like you, or don't have access to the experts like you do over at Flutzy, um, whether or not it it surprised the audience, uh, all cops and all agents are not experts in all things. It just isn't possible. What advice do you have for authors and aspiring writers who want to get the information they need to write crime stories that won't make professionals and true crime junkies throw the BS flag? Um, I tell them that they do have access because they probably know somebody like me. Um, if they know a crime writer, they know somebody who was in on the job, they know somebody at their local police department, or they can call the local police department or a, an adjacent police department, a small town police department, where they're more than happy to help you. Yeah, I think a big part of that is the, the difference in the federal appellate court system. So like working here in Arizona, we fall under the Ninth Circuit Court in San Francisco, which I think still holds the distinction of being the most overturned court in the country by Supreme Court decisions. And I was really surprised how much that impacted what we did. Oh, yeah. I mean, in, I was in the Fourth Circuit, um, which is pretty much the opposite of the Ninth Circuit. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a, you know, it's night and day. Um, it's just amazing the differences, the nuances, even in one state between department and department. So it's, I, I, I find it fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. When I was working trafficking, we had this case that required me to do some research on uh, uh, case law on trackers and tracking devices. And there was this case, um, a Mexican pilot flies an airplane with no tail numbers, um, completely illegal flight, flies over from Mexico, uh, dumps a load, uh, thousands of pounds of bales of marijuana. Pilot takes off, ground crew comes out, throws all the bales into trucks and they start driving off. Cops arrest the truck drivers and this case ends up going all the way to the Supreme Court because after they were convicted, the pilot shows up and files a motion to dismiss because he objects to the seizure of the marijuana bales because that was a business proceed. And those uh, the, those truck drivers were his business associates. And that ends up sullying the uh, dirtying up the decision about whether or not those proceeds were illegally searched because he, the pilot, a business investor, an associate in this business, didn't consent to the search that revealed the drugs. And it had to go all the way to the Supreme Court for common sense to, uh, to, to override that and, and prevent the case from being dropped. Yeah. Yeah. Once it gets in the court system, you never know. What's your favorite crime show and who's your favorite fictional detective, JJ? 
Oh gosh, um, crime show. That's tough because I'm so hard on them. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I believe it or not, I and I mentioned Agatha Christie earlier. I, there's not that many of them for whatever reason. My wife got me into these, and I, I've gotten into watching the. They're, they're old. They're older now because they stopped making them. Um, the Perot mysteries, the Agatha Christie. Yeah. Perot. I actually enjoy watching those when they come on. Um, I, I I enjoy watching those, even though they're um, they're not your typical uh, you know Hollywood productions mm-hmm. that you see today. Um, I've gotten I've I've just gotten away from. I still occasionally will you know be watching you know the the NCIS type shows that come on. Um, and uh, what was your other question? The favorite fictional detective? Yep. Yep. Uh, Philip Marlowe. Um, I'll go back to Raymond Chandler books. Uh, that's probably one of my favorites. Um, even though there's um, an author named John Burden has um, has a detective named David Gurney who I enjoy um, a lot. Uh, so, and then um, there's there's so many small press authors out there that that have so many great. Uh, books that don't get a, a lot of press out there, but uh, and they have a lot of good fictional detectives, even if they're not in typical detective roles. But um, I, I'll go with a couple of the classics there. And what would you like most for readers to take away from your writing and from your books? Um, that it's different. That um, when they when they when they close that book, they'll be you know that they'll think about it for at least a few days afterwards, and that they'll say, "I hadn't read a book like that before," um, and if I feel like if they did that, then I did my job. If, if they read, if they read it and they're like, "Oh well, that's that's like you know the other twenty eight crime novels that I read, you know, in the past few years," then then I feel like I failed. Um, but if it, if they said that was a little different, that one that one uh, surprised me, and that one I wasn't expecting it to be, and that that stuck in my head for a while, then I, I feel like I will have you know, accomplished my goal. I like that. I think that's be a real mark of success. Where can listeners find your work, JJ? I am pretty much everywhere online. Um, I have uh, a website, uh, www.hensley-books.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook, uh, JJ Hensley author page. If you could just put that on Facebook, I pop up. Uh, my Twitter handle is JJ Hensley author. And I have a blog out there. It's um, from Yen. It's from Yens to Y'all because I moved from Pittsburgh, where inexplicably they say Yens uh, for, for you all. And uh, now I'm in. Now I'm just outside Savannah, where they say Y'all. So it's from Yens, Y I N Z to Y'all, um, or you can just Google my name and uh, it pops up all the time. But uh, I'm and I'm on Goodreads and I've got an Amazon page and everywhere. So if you just Google JJ Hensley author, I pop up there. Thank you so much. I, JJ, I greatly appreciate you making time out of your evening to come on the show and answer a few questions tonight. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been critically acclaimed author JJ Hensley. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.